0: Good morning. It's good to be with you. I'm reading from John chapter 13, verses 21 through 38. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table. to him, what are you going to do? Do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Jesus had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him? If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, Where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon, says to, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Lord God, we thank you for this day. Now, at this time, Lord, we ask that you be with Craig as he delivers the message and that we will be open ears to receive what He says. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated.
1: Well, please open your Bibles to where we just read, to John chapter 13. We'll want to make reference there. And uh, I want to send you greetings from Christ Memorial Church in Williston, from the next center for church planning and revitalization. I'm happy to be here with you this morning. It's my honor to be here. So let's look to the word of the Lord together. And I know we just prayed. Let me just ask you if you would indulge me to pray one more time. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that your spirit would be at work despite the obstacles that are present in us because of our sin. And that you would grant hearing and change change of heart change of mind so that we conform to jesus christ in the way that he lays out for us in the way that gives glory to him and to you and we ask for it in jesus name amen well i'll tell you i was at a wedding yesterday i wasn't performing it i was just there in the audience and you know as i go to weddings over the years i i find out that they get harder for me because I listen to what the preacher is saying very intently and I realize you're talking about some hard stuff uh, you know when we're doing marriage counseling with these young guys this young man was only 23 years old you know just a kid in my mind and but uh, we counsel them and we try to help them and we try it was it's almost like we try to talk them out of it we don't really want to talk them out of it we we'd like them to be prepared because they are so enamored of the idea I'm gonna get married it's going to be great and we'd like them to say well yes it's going to be great Um, but there's a little more to it than it being great Uh, but it is great Um, it's hard but it's worth it and so when I come away from weddings like the one I came away from yesterday I'm I'm not as pumped up as I used to be sometimes because uh, I hear those words more soberly but I do come away saying God give me grace that's exactly who I want to be what that preacher was taught about, the husband that I want to be. Now I don't know why we're talking about marriage this morning it's because Jesus in the passage that's been read and in the verses that precede is actually showing us how it's hard to enter into the kingdom of heaven. He's showing us that it's great and it's worth it but it it's Not all that one might imagine. One must look at it carefully and rather count the cost of entering the kingdom of heaven. In the passage that we've read here, Jesus is predicting, showing what the kingdom of heaven costs anybody who enters it. And we're we're being shown, another way of saying that, is the path that Jesus is on, and it's right about here that Jesus' own path is starting to get costly. So I'm wondering about you this morning. You may be wondering why you're here. I wonder if you've ever considered how painful the path of Jesus was for him. But I'm not wondering that so that you'd feel sympathy. I'm wondering if you've considered how painful the path of Jesus is for his followers. And if you'd like to know how to walk that painful path after Jesus and what that looks like. Would you be interested to know why it is that this painful path belongs to to you as a believer and what it means for you if you're not on that path. I think this passage can help you to see it. The theme as I've tried to sum it up is simply this. Jesus Christ suffers painful sacrifice in order to lay down his life for his people to the glory of God. And that is a fate that marks the path of all his followers. Now this passage that we've, we've read today is really the overlap between two sections in John's Gospel. Verses 21 to 30 are the tail end of a story that started back in verse one this upper room story where Jesus is having the Passover with his men and then after verse 30 verses 31 to 38 all of which we read launches us into a discourse that's not going to stop till we get through John chapter 17 so I know that your pastor has you in a a series in John and I know that he already preached John the first part of John chapter 13 but I do want to reach back into the Those first 20 verses, because I think they they have direct bearing on the meaning of the verses we're looking at this morning. So if you'll indulge me to look back just a little bit, verses one to 20, and I'll just let's just touch on it. I'm not going to go back and read them, but it's that foot washing. That's probably the message you had last Sunday, am I right? Is that the message you got last Sunday? So uh, Jesus gave a very vivid illustration of several things. He he got his disciples together. He took on the job that only the the lowliest of slaves in his culture would take on. It wasn't even a job that you would give to a fellow Jew who was a slave, a fellow Hebrew, you'd only give that job to the Gentile slave. And of course he's washing their feet and and you know Peter did not readily accept this or really even understand it. So at first he said, oh no Jesus you can't wash my feet. I see you're greater than I am so you shouldn't wash my feet. And then Jesus says, if I don't wash you I have nothing to do with you. And Peter says, oh, oh I get it. Washing me means I have something to do with you. Okay. Wash my head and my hands too. I'm all in, Jesus. And then Jesus says, no, a person that's had a bath doesn't need another bath, but he needs his feet washed from time to time. And he said, if I, if I don't wash you, I have nothing to do with you. So he explained himself. He said, the one who's bathed doesn't need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And then he added, and you are clean, but not every one of you. That's a little somber foreshadowing that's going to bear on our passage, as you see. So, the foot washing had to do with cleansing. And and that has something to do with forgiving. Cleansing of sins. And Jesus said plainly, listen, if I'm greater than you, which you're right, I'm the teacher, I'm the Lord, you ought to do as I do. So, what is, what is he? You ought to wash each other's feet. Yes, it's it's a multi level metaphor. You ought to take the posture of a servant toward one another, like I take the posture of a servant toward you. And you ought to and you ought to cleanse. You ought to forgive one another as I am forgiving you. You ought to deal with one another's sin. There's going to continue to be a need for you to do that with one another. So he's washing their feet and he's modeling humility and service and forgiveness. So, but what's the message there? It's that they must live as Jesus lived, right? They must do what Jesus did. You must live as I lived. Believers imitate Jesus in this regard. Believers are identified with Jesus. We go the way he goes. And he's trying to tell them and show them his path. And of course, their path. Since it's his, it's theirs, you see. They're identified with Jesus. Now, in that in those verses, which we, we haven't reread, Jesus gives a, a little foreshadowing, right? You are clean, but not all of you. And then he says again. He quotes from Psalm 41 when he says, "Even my close friend, in whom I've trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me." You remember him saying that? Does that ring a bell? I'm going to ask you to indulge me as I turn back to Psalm 41. I'm not going to pull a bait and switch and preach that psalm, although that would be fun. Um, it's a great, it's a great psalm. But Jesus quotes from it, and you should know that whenever Jesus quotes from a psalm or someplace in the Old Testament. It's a little bit like when my wife transplants a plant. You you pull up not just the plant, but a great deal of the soil that's around it and bring it over. So when you get even a little snippet of a verse, the whole context is being invoked by jesus psalm 41 the whole thing speaks of christ it's it's prophetic david's the author david portrays and typifies jesus christ listen to these words they speak of christ blessed is the one who considers the poor psalm 41 in the day of trouble the lord delivers him the lord protects him and keeps him alive he is called blessed in the land you do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness you shall restore him to full health. As for me, I said, O oh Lord, be gracious to me, heal me for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out he tells it abroad, all who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me they say a deadly thing is poured out on him he will not rise again from where he lies even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me but you O Lord be gracious to me raise me up that I may repay them by this I know that you delight in me my enemy will not shout in triumph over me but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. So, here's David in his typological portrayal of the Messiah, crying out to the Lord that God would save him from his enemies and not let them triumph over him and not let them raise him up from where he lays stricken. These events are a forward-looking prophecy. They show us the Savior. Jesus is the one whose enemies wanted him to die. Jesus is the one upon whom a deadly thing was poured out. This speaks of his coming death on the cross. And the plea of David that God would raise him up from the sickbed so that he could pay back his enemies, it's the plea of Jesus that God would raise him from the dead. And it's done in anticipation of his final judgment upon the wicked. Because Jesus is the one in whom God delights. Jesus is the one whom God upheld in his integrity. He is the one whom God will set in his presence forever. It's easy to see those things. But for all those things to take place, Jesus must also be the one who speaks these words from verse 9 in Psalm 41 that Jesus took and spoke in the upper room. Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. So, in order for Jesus to die on the cross and be established in God's presence forever, in order for Jesus to be the agent of God's judgment and take vengeance on all the wicked of the earth, as he one day will, Jesus had to be betrayed by his close friend and be delivered over to the enemy and be crucified and be buried. And only after three days would Jesus rise in triumph over death and over the devil and then ascend to glory. Why did he tell all this? Why is he invoking this idea? Why is he telling this stuff to the disciples about him being betrayed? Well, he says in, in, back, back in John 13, as we look back there, he says to them in verse 19, he says it's so that their faith would be strong when they see it happen. Yeah, this you're going to see this happen. This guy's going to betray me. So I'd like you not to be totally wigged out by that. This is what's going to happen. Maintain your faith. And so that their, their mission would be formed by what they'd seen. Because what God sent Jesus to do once for all as a unique Savior would nevertheless shape what his followers would do as he sent them out to make disciples. That's in verse 20. Truly I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. He's saying you are identified with me. You're just like me. You're my emissaries in the world as it is for me it'll be for you in other words so he wanted them to know that as it is for me so it'll be for you now we come to verse 21 all that's a backdrop in verse 21 we we hear this story that was just read to us of the betrayal so it, it, the backdrop here is that this is a very intimate setting you know in that day and time they didn't always recline at the table, but in, in, by that day, uh, the Jews would recline at the table. I'm talking about laying down on the floor with a short table. And you lay on your one side, and you, on your left side, and you kind of reach over to the table, and you're around this table, like in a circle. Uh, they would do that on formal and special occasions. That, that was the old tradition. They didn't always do it, but they would have on, at this meal. They're laying on the floor, and they It's very intimate. They're, they're shoulder to shoulder. They're, they're right up against each other and, and they're, they're sharing this meal together the language is intimate it says, it says uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved which we know to be a reference to John it says he lay literally in the bosom of Jesus he leaned up against him such that when, when Jesus says to them he's troubled in spirit and he says one of you is going to betray me the other Gospels record a different perspective, but this Gospel writer records the perspective of the other guys. Looked over at John, who was particularly close to Jesus, and said, ask, ask him who it is. And so he leans over, he's right there, and he's leaned up against Jesus. He says, Lord, tell me, tell me who it is. And so Jesus tells him, well, it's the one that I'm going to dip this piece of bread in the bowl of whatever we're eating, and I'm going to give it to him. So he does it he gives it to Judas. And then he says, what you're about to do, just go do it. Do it fast. Get it over with. And the others didn't actually hear that. We learned from John. They weren't clear. Why did he send Judas out? Did he tell him to go to the store? What's what's going on? Uh, But part of the takeaway from this is that intimacy with Jesus is no insulation against these hard things. This is a hard thing that's happening to Jesus and frankly to the other guys. One of the twelve is a traitor, stabbing him in the back. Now, when you get through that scene, after these things, uh, as soon as this is over, when Judas had gone out, you pick up in verse 31, and this launches a whole discourse that Jesus is going to a series of discourses if you will from here all the way through chapter 17 but we're only looking at verses 31 to 38 Jesus is doing a little teaching here because it says when he had gone out Jesus said verse 31 now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him if God is glorified in him God will also glorify him in himself And we'll glorify him at once. So all this is announcing to us that Jesus is the Messiah. John's whole gospel is insisting that Jesus is the Messiah. And he says, now the hour has come for him to be glorified. And for the Father to be glorified on account of him. And for the Son to be glorified in the Father. It's all mixed up in a Trinitarian kind of a way. But when Jesus says this, time for me to be glorified, he's invoking Old Testament ideas about the Messiah that were predicted. You don't have to turn, but Isaiah chapter 49, verse 3, And he said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. That that prophetically points us right to Christ. The nation of Israel didn't glorify God, but Jesus, the true Israel, he's about to glorify God. He's about to really glorify God. And Daniel chapter 7, uh, famous verses, Daniel's vision in, in verse 13. Again, you don't have to turn, but Daniel writes, I saw in the night visions. Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away And His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Now is the Son of Man glorified. Jesus is invoking that memory. I'm the Son of Man. Now I'm about to be glorified. That sounds awesome. Glory and a kingdom. True Israel. Glorifying God. So how is Jesus going to do this? How is he going to bring this glory? How is he going to accomplish it? The answer is in verse 33, if you can hear it. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you where I am going, you cannot come. That's a little cryptic, isn't it? Can you recall that earlier in John's Gospel, if you've read it or if you remember some sermons, he said to the Jews that they would seek him and not find him. He said he was going somewhere that they couldn't come. Now, back in John chapter 8, he said these things to the Jews concerning his own death. And they kind of understood and they kind of didn't because they thought, is this guy going to kill himself? Is he suicidal? Is that what he's talking about? But there was actually a Uh, a subtlety to Jesus' words he's saying you can't die with me and you can't he said to those Jews you can't go to heaven with me he said to them plainly you will die in your sins that's what he told the unbelieving Jews you can't go with me you're going to die in your sins and here He says the same thing, but there's a a slightly different subtlety in his words. There is subtlety in it, though. Jesus is going to glorify God and be glorified as he dies on the cross for his people. He is indeed talking about his death. Now is the Son of Man glorified. He's talking about Jesus' death. You can't come with me means I have to go to the cross alone the disciples cannot go there for him no one else can die for the sins of others only the Messiah only the true Israel only the perfect sinless Lamb of God can be the sacrifice for sins only Jesus the Messiah can be the Passover Lamb whose blood is shed so others are spared Only Jesus the Messiah can be the Lamb that's slain on the Day of Atonement, whose blood is shed to cover the sins of others. Only Jesus the Messiah can be the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement that's driven into the wilderness to die for the sins that have been laid on His head. Nobody can go there with Jesus. Nobody can do that for Him. The disciples can't come. But here's where the subtlety comes in. Disciples, the disciples can't come where Jesus is going, not yet. Just a few verses, we're going to find out that they can come later. On account of Jesus, they can and will come later. Can they they come? Where can they come? Can they come to death with Jesus? Or can they go to the Father with Jesus? And the answer is yes to both of those things. After Jesus is glorified through his death on the cross, his followers can follow him. They will follow him. They'll follow him in death and in death glory and eternal life and Jesus has laid the groundwork for this meaning before he makes it plain if you pick it up in verse 34 it starts to be more plain I'm hoping you're connecting dots with me look at verse 34 a new commandment I give to you right on the heels of now is the son of man glorified a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, that is not some random comment out of left field for Jesus. It pertains to what he's already saying. First of all, it's only a new commandment in a qualified way. That's not brand new news in the Bible. You should love one another. The law of God has always been summarized as supreme love for God and love for your neighbor love your neighbor as yourself. What's new is the new covenant arrangement under which this command is going to be followed, because Jesus is going to inaugurate the new covenant in His blood, and He will pour out the Spirit of God broadly on all of His people. They will enjoy a new power to love one another, truly from the heart. Their love for one another is going to amaze the world, and it's going to provide a witness that they must be followers of Jesus. How else can you explain it? But I want you to notice the quality of this love as Jesus Jesus declares it Jesus said just as I have loved you you also are to love one another now that should just make you stop and think what does that mean? just as I have loved you well, the short answer is that Jesus loves his people by suffering and dying for them. Jesus loves his disciples by humbling himself to serve them, by bearing their sins, by offering his forgiveness at the price of his own blood. That's how Jesus loves his disciples. And while his disciples, cannot pay for their own sins, nor can they pay for the sins of others before God. They can and they must forgive the sins of one another and serve one another in ways that are costly to them. They cost dearly. Even at the cost of their own lives. That's what it means to love as Jesus loved. To love at the cost of your own life. It means to love when it's painful. It means to love when it's costly. It means to love those who may betray you or harm you. It means to suffer the loss of other things in favor of the service of these whom you love. Now, Jesus speaks more plainly of this cost. It comes out plainer when you get down to verse 36. Follow along in the text with me still. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So, just follow it with me. Peter asks plainly, where are you going? Jesus, I'm going where you can't follow me. Not now. However, you can follow me later. Which has to mean, of course, you, you cannot die with me on this occasion. I go to the cross. I must die alone for you, Peter, for all my people. This you cannot do. But you can follow me later. You can follow me in death. And then, of course, you can follow me to the Father. Peter understands that Jesus is talking about death. Wasn't wasn't it plain from what he said? Why can I not go with you now? I am ready to die for you. I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus of course says to Peter, well you're, you're not as ready as you think you are. I already know that tonight you're going to deny me three times. So you're probably less ready than you think you are Peter. Now Sadly, we have to leave aside, unless you invite me back, the further contemplation of what Peter's denial is going to mean. We haven't actually gotten to it. We've only gotten to a prediction of it. Um, I'm going to simply say to you, for the record... I know there's more than one point of view as to what it means when Peter famously denies Jesus. I do not believe it means that Peter at this point is still lost, still unconverted, still doesn't have saving faith. But I know people who do because they think he didn't have saving faith till the resurrection, till there was resurrection faith. I think Jesus declared Peter clean here as over against Judas, and says it again in chapter 15, you're clean because of the word that I spoke to you. But I think Peter's weak. He hasn't received the blessing of Pentecost, where the Spirit of God is going to be poured out gently. But generously, not gently, <laughs> generously. As I say, that's a, that's a coming message. You have to sit on that one. Jesus is going to restore Peter after his denial, and Jesus' words here are prophetic. You can fo- Afterward, you will follow me. That's a true statement, because the history that we know says that afterward, Peter did follow Jesus. He followed him in death. He was crucified for the sake of the gospel, following after Jesus but for this morning we have to stop and consider how the followers of Jesus who wish to follow him to the father must also follow him through pain and loss and death in order to follow him to glory they're not buying anything but it's necessary it's a little like that wedding it's a little like that wedding you're not buying anything I never bought a wife she never bought me but there were things that went along with having the blessing of that and it was hard so what do you do with this what what do we do with this Jesus path through his painful sacrifice and unto glory well I'm going to first make a sober appeal to some of you here today I don't know any of you almost none of you do I've met four or five of you, I know one guy sitting out there, so I feel perfectly qualified and at ease to say there could easily be someone, some young person, or some visitor, or someone else in this room who doesn't really know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You're here, you're in church, maybe you attend regularly, but haven't personally become a follower of Christ. And I don't want to pass up the opportunity, if that's you, to call you to faith in Christ today. So here's your situation. If you're outside of Christ... You've never turned from your sins in favor of having Christ. As Jesus said earlier in John to the Jews, you are going to die in your sins. That's your situation. I'm not going to take a lot of time this morning to prove to you that you're a sinner. Surely you know that. Surely you have someone who loves you who could help you know that. Surely you know that you break the law of God in thought, word, and deed. Surely you know that at the deepest heart level, you do not love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Surely you know you don't love your neighbor as yourself. That is the summary of God's law. And I hope you know, and are not deceived, that God one day is not planning to shrug his shoulders and let everybody into his eternal presence because he realizes that everybody meant well and everybody was sincere. Nobody gets a pass on their sin. Not anybody. So if that's you outside of Christ, you're headed for eternal doom. And that's fact. And I'm wishing to call you out of that situation this morning, I want to call upon you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. For the forgiveness of your sins. For the gift of eternal life. Your works won't help. You can't earn your way, buy your way in. Faith alone will connect you with Jesus. Faith alone will be the means by which you get all of Christ's benefits and blessings. Faith alone that'll be the way believe but I do hope you're listening to this whole message this morning if that's you outside of Christ I don't want to sell you a phony version of salvation this salvation is a free gift it is earned only by Christ who lived the perfect life and died a sacrificial death and rose in a glorious resurrection it's freely yours by faith alone but the faith which alone connects you to Jesus will not turn out to be without cost for you not the cost of a purchase but a cost it's the cost of a new life To receive a new life from Jesus, your old life must be forfeit. You can't have your old life and your new life. When Jesus calls people to be his followers, he actually calls on them in a way that we never seem to do, to count the cost before they come follow him. Because following Jesus must mean following him on his path. Isn't that common sense? You can't follow Jesus to heaven without following Jesus in sacrifice, in humility, in service, and in love. If you come to Christ by faith alone, if you do that, that's what he calls you to do. And that's what he calls you to be. The good news of that, it's part of the good news, is that Jesus is offering the transformation that's required. Faith will result in the pouring out of God's Spirit that we mentioned, giving you a new mind and a new heart, a new ability to follow Jesus in repentance and in sacrifice. So my appeal to you is very straightforward. If you're outside of Christ, will you come to Christ today? You can. You may. Will you? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And if that doesn't make sense to you this morning, I invite you to talk to me after this service. We'll talk about it some more. But now for everyone else who's already put your trust in Christ, I want to ask you, are you a follower who follows? You claim following Jesus. I wonder if you have followed Christ in sacrifice. And when Jesus washed the disciples' feet, He said, If I, your Lord and Teacher, have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. And we know what He meant. He spoke, as we said, about humility, about service, about forgiveness. And when Jesus told them that they couldn't follow him yet, we also know that he meant they couldn't follow him to the cross that day, but they could follow him to their own cross one day. They could follow him in humility, service, sacrifice. They could follow him even in being betrayed and rejected. And they must, if they would follow him to glory. So I'm asking you if you're following Jesus to glory, And is his path the one that you're on? If you were to ask me what that looks like, I would say it looks like humble sacrifice. In the church. The willingness to do the lowliest job and never to be recognized for doing it, for example. Now, I've found in my experience, there actually is not a shortage of people who can be persuaded to do a lowly job in the service of the church. What there is a shortage of is people who don't need to be recognized and praised for doing that. It's one thing to volunteer to be a servant. It's another thing to be treated as nothing more than a servant. Most people do not have a stomach for that. If Jesus would literally wash the feet of the disciples, I ask, what would you do for them? That's not a theoretical question. I'm not assessing your invisible attitude of humility so you get an award for that. It's just the practical outworking of the fact that the followers of Christ must follow the new commandment, Even as Christ followed his own commandment. The commandment is to have love for one another. And the definition of the love that you're supposed to have is the kind that Jesus had which was sacrificial and humble. You can't really claim to have love for one another if it's not sacrificial and humble love. That's how he loved them, by giving up his life. Jesus taught us in John's gospel, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So I'm kind of asking you, will you lay down your life for these other believers? It's a fair question. You may think to yourself, well, of course I would lay down my life if it ever came to that. What I'm trying to say to you is that it always comes down to that. It never fails to come down to that. Either you lay down your preference, you lay down your desire, you lay down your time and your energy, you lay down yourself for the sake of the others in this church, or you don't. And Jesus says, this is how his followers follow. They love one another, and that love always costs you your life. I would say it also looks, if you're on that path, what it looks like, is your embrace of rejection. This could be more painful than some of what we just said. Jesus was very resolute in his journey to the cross, and we've seen right here in our passage what that journey cost him in part. It cost him betrayal, didn't it? Somebody who was close to him, close as a friend, close as a brother, an intimate companion, finally turned his back on him, stabbed him in the back, and we don't see Jesus getting all huffy about that, sitting around saying to the other disciples, Can you believe that guy? I always knew he was a jerk. Uh, Jesus maintained his fellowship with that betrayer until the end, and then he let him go because off he went while Jesus stayed the course of sacrifice. Judas rejected Jesus. Jesus stayed the course. And I'm wondering if you've come to accept that following Jesus will inevitably cost you the rejection and betrayal of other people. It is always true, as Jesus says in John, that the world hates him. He's going to say that in the next couple of chapters. Therefore, the world will always hate you. That means that people who you think are your friends will one day turn their back on you people that you think are true followers of Jesus will one day turn their back on him and on you if you've never yet had following Christ cost you a relationship with somebody in the world you've not been following hard enough or long enough you will it costs family relationships it costs work relationships it won't be fair just like it was for Jesus it won't be fair Your parents may come to distance themselves from you. Your children may avoid you or despise you. Your siblings may hold you at arm's length or hate you. You may be the object of ridicule and persecution and unfair practices at work that cost you money and friends. But here's what it comes down to. Will you stand with Jesus and love him and be identified with him before the world that hates him? Identified with him and with his people? Or will you slink away and try to avoid that cost? And all I'm saying to you, and I think it's what Jesus is pushing at in John 13 is there really is no other kind of following either we follow Jesus in love and sacrifice and finally to glory or we don't follow Jesus at all well I say to you it is good news that Jesus came to lay down his life for us I call on you to embrace that as good news. Isn't it good news that Jesus has glorified God through His death on the cross and He has showered the benefits of His saving work upon us? Shall we not therefore in faith follow after Him in love, in sacrifice, all the way to glory? Let's follow Jesus there for His sake. Let us pray. Father, give us grace to be those who believe and who, through painful sacrifice, endure unto glory. Make us like Jesus, who bore it all for us. May we find the grace from you to bear what he calls us to bear. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen.